Hello, this is Logan Shipkin, and you're listening to the Fallible Animals Podcast. Today marks the first episode in which we begin our investigation into economics, argumentation ethics, and praxeology, the last of which is the science of people action. Like critical rationalism and constructor theory, praxeology is one of civilization's most fundamental theories and also one of the least known. In fact, I regard critical rationalism, constructor theory, and praxeology as a kind of big three. One of the goals of this podcast is to explain why these three theories are our best explanations in their respective domains, and why they're so fundamental, and to then spread them as far and wide as possible. So joining me today to discuss economics and the related concepts is patent attorney and libertarian theorist Stefan Kinsella. Mr. Kinsella is the author of the book Against Intellectual Property and is the founder and director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. He is also the founder and editor of Libertarian Papers, and he's a member of the editorial board of Reason Papers. He was previously an adjunct law professor at South Texas College of Law and has served as chair of the Computer Law Subcommittee of the Federalist Society's IP Practice Group. I've linked to several of his publications in the show notes page, including the ones mentioned in our discussion. We cover a wide range of specific topics, including property rights, argumentation ethics, whether or not praxeology is falsifiable, common arguments against the existence or morality of an anarcho-capitalist society, this is also a stateless society, and we also talk about potential connections between praxeology, free will, and constructor theory. Without further ado, I give you Stefan Kinsella. All right, I'm here with Stefan Kinsella. Stefan, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Glad to be here. So you live in Houston? I do. From Louisiana originally, lived uh, lived around the world, lived in London and uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia for a while too, but I've uh, been here for oh, long enough for some people to call me a Texan. Yeah, it's funny. We almost switched places sort of and also through time. I live in Philly now, but I was living in Houston until June. Okay. Yeah, I was in grad school, so it's too bad uh, I didn't connect with you earlier. But yep, a- yep. So I wanted to talk t- with you about a few things. Uh, you're well known for a few different uh, insights into libertarian theory, sort of anarcho-capitalism type theory, praxeology, all this good stuff. And I want to get to all of it. But let's start with rights theory. So libertarians will often talk about justice or the free market or capitalism, or even the non-aggression principle, but you've written that these are all secondary to, and less fundamental than, property rights. So how is it that property rights underlie all these other libertarian concepts, and feel free to define property rights first and take it from there? Sure, Um, and I would say that there's a distinction here between rights theory, that is the arguments or basis we have for believing in a certain uh, type of rights, okay? Which is, which is something some libertarians don't do, or some just go by intuition or by consequentialism or utilitarianism, and some have a more, um, say, deontological argument or a principled or a natural rights type argument. Um, uh, so like Hoppe's argumentation ethics is one sort of type of 
uh, deontological argument for rights, and I have one that's related to that called estoppel. So that's the argument for rights, and we can go into that if you want. Um, but the understanding of property rights itself is sort of a different issue. It's really more of a legal matter and just a matter of conceptual clarity and precision. The way I would look at it is this. Um, if you have any kind of normative or valuative position at all about what what laws should be, how we should interact with each other, we say the word should. We're talking already about how people interact, and we're 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 already doing something different than uh, a description of the causal world, which is the factual world, descriptive things. So you're not really describing the way things are, like whether this mountain is here, whether a volcano is likely to erupt, whether this Earth is round. Things like that. What the what what the law of gravity is? Um, you're talking about what people should do, what rules should govern our interactions. So this is the stuff of morality, of ethics, of norms. Um, so once you start talking about that, that's that's what we're talking about. And if it, uh, um, most libertarians and most, I'd say most normal people in the West, they have this idea of rights. So a right is like a special type of norm. It usually is highly connected with law. So basically the question is what should the law be, which means when can force be – when should force be – when is force justifiably used? When you talk about things like rights and laws, you're basically talking about uh, when is – when should be when, – when force may be used properly because that's what law does. Law is like an institutionalized use of force by people against um, against others when they breach certain – acceptable rules of behavior. So these are all rights. So we say you have a right to your life. You have a right to your body. You have a right to the to the to the house that you built. You have a right to um, um, a wheelbarrow that you purchased from someone. And as Ayn Rand, I would go through an evolution like say Ayn Rand, one of the first libertarians, although she wouldn't use that term, um, she clarified that all rights are individual rights. They're not rights held by society. They're rights held by the individual. So that's number one. So all rights uh, give you sort of this sphere where you can act free from interference by other people. That's how she viewed rights, which I think is roughly correct. It's just not quite precise enough. Now, Rothbard came along and said, well, not only are all rights individual rights held by individual human actors… But all rights are property rights. It's not just like some rights are property rights. So you'll hear sometimes leftists or or liberals will say that property doesn't have any rights and that we're over, we're overly obsessed with property rights. But what they fail to understand is that all rights are property rights. That's exactly what rights are. Rights are the justified control over a given scarce resource in the world. And the reason they arise is because there can be conflict over these resources, over who can tr control your body or my body or other things that we uh, use in the world to accomplish our ends and to live, um, what people sometimes call property, but which I would call scarce resources. And to be precise, I would say that we have property rights in certain resources. That means you have an ownership interest in certain resources, which means that the legal system of the society that you live in recognizes… Uh, that the laws should protect certain property rights. Okay, so a property right is um, is the the right to use a scarce resource. So it's a connection between a given resource and a given person, and it basically says that that person has the 
um, he has the say-so over who can use that resource. If he wants to let someone else use his resource, he can. For example, I own myself or my body, so I can choose to let someone kiss me if I want to. I can give them permission, but the reason I can give permission is because I own my body. On the other hand, if I don't want someone to touch me, um, I can deny them permission. Right, and the same thing is true with other resources that we come to own that were formerly unowned property right, property things, resources. Um, so we would say that you know if I own a home or a car, what that means is that I get to say who can use it. So I can grant you permission to borrow or use my car or sit in my car or step on my lawn, or I can exclude you. I can say no. So that's the essence of property rights, and that's basically what laws do. Laws are basically always based upon some implicit uh, uh, property right idea. And the other thing to understand is that by this understanding, it's not just that capitalists or free market types or libertarians believe in property rights. Everyone believes in property rights, even socialists. It's just that how they allocate property rights is what's different because in every legal system, whether it's North Korea… Um, or Venezuela or Britain or France, Russia or the US, there is some answer to the question, who owns this particular resource, You know, this factory, this gold, this body? Now, the answer that libertarians give is unique, and it's what I said earlier. It's that every person owns his own body and that for scarce resources that were previously unowned, we determine the owner by simply asking who started using it first or who acquired it by contract from a previous owner. So we look at contract and homesteading to determine the answers. Every other system basically violates these rules and, and ends up taking a resource that would be naturally recognized as owning to some person, being owned by some person, and giving it to someone else. So for example, in the case of conscription, the government says you own your body most of the time, but we really are the owner. That's why we can take you and force you to go to war. Um, or if the government says um, we will put you in prison if you smoke marijuana, then they're claiming ownership of your body because I should be the one who decides whether someone can touch my body and force me into a, a jail cell. Um, and as for taxes, then you know the government is physically taking some of my resources from me that I'm the natural owner of, or they're coercing my body with physical punishment if I don't turn it over. So in either case, they're violating the basic, simple private law, even the common law rules, which are largely synonymous with libertarianism. So that's what property rights are, and that's um, that's my interest in it, and that's the interest of a lot of libertarian theorists like Murray Rothbard and others. And I've tried to work on clarifying even further these legal concepts um, even further and further, like building on Rothbard and Mises and others. Uh, and then there's the whole question of justification, which is the argument aspect of justifying these libertarian rules. Yes, there's a lot there. Uh, there's a lot that I am sort of tempted to respond with because I definitely want to get to argumentation ethics and your uh, estoppel argument uh, in a bit. But let's just – so you said a couple things that I want to comment on immediately, which is that really everyone recognizes property rights. It's just that it seems like only libertarians make it explicit and explain why the private, the rules of libertarian property rights are the only universal and consistent set of rules. So as you were saying, a socialist also agrees with the concept of property rights. He or she just thinks the, go the government gets to decide. 
how to what to do with particular scarce resources. Right, and there's different okay, there's different ways we can unpack that. First of all, I would say that most people agree to a large extent even with the libertarian substantive rules. Like they agree that it's wrong to steal. Okay, it, it, but you hit the right word, consistency. They're just not very consistent about it. Um, or to put it this way, they bought into this legal positivist idea that law flows from some authority, which in today's world is the government or the state. They can't conceive of it happening in an organic, natural, private way without some authority issuing these issuing the laws. And I think in a way this traces back even to the, the previous more religious-based idea, which is that God is the lawgiver. So unlike a lot of my natural law friends who think we should revert to that kind of way of thinking, um, I think there's even an element of legal positivism in the idea that God can decree right and wrong. God can decree laws. Uh, now, if you gave me a choice between having this uh, idealized, ultra-good character up there that is the source of our laws, I would take that over the idea of a committee of bureaucrats in Congress decreeing what law is. Okay, I, I grant you that. But in a way, they're they're all rooted in the same idea that we need a father figure. We need some superior authority to grant to issue a decree as to what the laws are. But what happens over time is human society is composed of even the government is composed of people, and we all have common sense and intuitions, and we have experience developed over millennia of, of, of human society developing, right? Where we sort of know what rules make sense, what seems fair, what works. Um, and so even a socialist would say, well, you know, if you own your your home or if you own your car or you own your clothes, those can't be taken from you. They just want to have the means of production owned by the collective, right? So they're just not perfectly consistent. Um, or if you own your home and your and your goods and all this and you make a salary, the government is entitled to come take one half of it or one third of it for, for no reason at all except necessity. So the government needs it. So I do think that the one two, – two of the reasons that most people are not libertarians is because, number one, they really haven't learned a lot about just sound common sense economics. They just are not economically literate. So they believe things like the minimum wage helps the poor, which is just obviously stupid, or tariffs can help local producers, and tariffs are good for a country. They just don't understand basic economics. And number two, they just don't have an obsession with consistency like like we libertarians do. So I do think that's what makes us considered radicals because we take the basic ideas that most people believe, and we just we just take them to the you know we turn the the knob up to eleven. Right, as one of my intellectual heroes, David Deutsch, has done throughout his career, is you don't just pick and choose which aspects of a theory you like and then accept those as true. The point of a theory in science or economics or morality is you take the theory seriously and all of its logical implications. And that can take you to counterintuitive places, but reality doesn't care what we consider intuitive or not. I think that's true, but I, I think that um, – look, most people in society are not going to be philosophers. They're going to be farmers or you know, uh, computer graphics designers or whatever they do, and people specialize. Um, so the only way morality can work in society is if there's something natural about it, something that's intuitive and even common sense, um, and I think it is, which is why most people, even without a lot of thought, 
they know it's wrong to hit people. They know that it's wrong to uh, to steal. It's just that they, they they they've been conned by these uh, by basically brainwashing and propaganda to to believe that there should be big exceptions, basically exceptions made by the state. This is why like Bastiat back in the eighteen the mid 1800s was so amazing as a writer because he basically kept saying, "Well, we all we all disagree with with we all disapprove of plunder, but most people make exceptions when the government does it. You know, but just because if you can't do something, two or three or four or ten people allied together don't have the right to do it all of a sudden. So he, he you know he kind of points out the inconsistency between having one rule." One set of rules for everyday normal private people and another set of rules for the state. But that comes about because of this belief in the state's near you know, near religious, near mystical necessity and power and strength, which is why people will go die for the government. And they have patriotism. You know, they they say they bleed red, white, and blue and they'll die for the flag. There is a type of mystical reverence for the, the state, even though it's just a bunch of people claiming power to to exploit the, the non-state classes. I agree with all of that, uh, but let me push back a little bit on just the fact that you say that sort of private property rights, non-aggression principle is common sense everywhere except the government. But I don't really think we should even take that for granted. I mean, it's not the case even now in 2019 that private property rights are respected in the private sphere in all societies. I think it took a lot of work throughout the history of civilization for us to reach that point. Uh, sure, I agree. I think that um, um, well, uh, look, think about language. Language has developed over time. I think in the beginning, listen, before we had any kind of developed language, we were developing uh, pre-cavemen hominid types, right? We were intelligent pre-apes, but we weren't really humans yet. Language gets developed. Then the ability to write things down and record things for a long time uh, gradually gets developed, and then a more systematic understanding of sciences and how to do experiments and learn how to build things and um, how to do animal husbandry. These things emerge over time, and the more these things develop, um, the more we can have what we think of as society. That is people living in a social order, an extended social order, where basically the benefit is um, we get our social… Uh, the benefits of living among other humans because we don't want to live alone, but we also get the benefit of the division and specialization of labor, which can only emerge when you start having a large extended society which respects certain rules and uh, you know and, and also which which starts to have trade and then eventually has money, which is another radical step forward. So when these things develop, society gets more and more developed, and it could be that as some libertarians like Ayn Rand and others have pointed, you know, they believe that basically a free society, a libertarian-type society would not have been possible, say, before the Industrial Revolution or, or the uh, – uh, say, two, three hundred years ago because we just hadn't reached that level of humanity yet where it was possible. I don't know if that's, that's all true. From my point of view, I focus on um, normative issues of justification. So for example, I give a different argument to the anarchist issue than most anarchists do. A lot of libertarians are very into activism and politics and practicality and quote-unquote what works or quote what persuades people. Um, to my – and that's all fine, but my view is on what's the truth. 
how do we figure out what the truth is and elaborating on that, expanding upon it, building upon it. And what comes from that is other people can decide what to do with it. So my focus is on the truth. And so I, I've written before some article, The Irrelevance of the Impossibility of Anarchy, because you'll hear people say, well, I don't think anarchy is possible. Now, I don't agree with them, but there's different there's different arguments you can use to explain why that's wrong. Anarchy is, of course, possible. We have anarchy right now between the states. We have anarchy within each state. There is no supervening authority in the federal government of the United States, for example, that makes any one person comply. I mean Donald Trump is limited. He's battling the Congress. You know, you, it's, it's a dispersed system inside the state. That's an anarchist system. It's not a good anarchist system, but it is. And then the 200 countries of the world, the nation states of the world, they're all roughly in anarchy with respect to each other, um, with one slight exception being the United States plays a, a role of a quasi-hegemon, uh, uh, but not, not, not completely. Um, and so uh, when people say, well, anarchy is impossible, my first response is, okay, well, so what? Because I think in this room of people discussing these issues, we would all agree that it's wrong to, to kidnap an innocent three-year-old girl and torture her to death. Okay, We would all agree with that. Let's not talk about the reasons, but we would all agree it's wrong. Or take a simpler example. It's wrong just to rob someone. Or it's wrong to murder someone, an innocent person. Now, does that mean that because we've recognized that something is wrong, that it will never ever again happen in the rest of history? No, we know that murder will continue to happen on occasion, even if the prevalence goes down. But we wouldn't say that the fact that someone was murdered disproves our belief that it's wrong to commit murder. It doesn't disprove it at all because this is not a factual statement. It's a normative statement. It's a statement about shoulds and oughts and ethics, what we believe is right and wrong. So even if people go around rampaging and pillaging and looting and raping and murdering, I can still believe that's wrong. And the belief in anarchism is similar because to be an anarchist does not mean you're predicting that we will reach this utopian point someday. What it means is you're making a statement that the state – is unjustified and unjust because the state necessarily commits aggression, and aggression is an unjustifiable immoral action. So that's all we're saying. It's very similar to saying that murder's wrong. You shouldn't do it. We're saying the state is wrong. It has no right to exist or to do what it does. So the problem with putting it that way, which is my view, is that a lot of Libertarians are, as I said, activist types, and they want results now. They're basically like impatient toddlers. You know, they they want some. Pla so don't give me this anarchist crap. I can't go out on the streets of Philadelphia and hand out brochures telling people we're going to get rid of the police. It's like that's fine, but so, but, so they, they 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 everything they hear is filtered into this activist lens. If they want results now. I mean I think you have to have a long view. We're not going to achieve liberty tomorrow. We're not going to be free of the income tax code anytime soon. Uh, we're not going to be free of the threat of, the threat of nuclear war anytime soon. Um, hopefully we can survive this. Um, so I guess it's a question of what's the role of intellectual activism or intellectual pursuits like this. I think it's to understand. Others think it's to spread a message. To proselytize, to persuade others, 
which is why a lot of people join the LP and they go out and vote and they try to tell people to vote. Then they'll vote for compromised candidates because at least we make some gains for liberty, blah, blah, blah. Of course, we never do. Right. I mean, Uber's made more advances for liberty than the Libertarian Party ever has. And it's not even a libertarian group. It's just the natural workings of the free market and technology and wealth and network effects and the the growth of rich people on the earth, right, has led to these things emerging. And I think more and more things like that are going to emerge. It's interesting. You made me think of so Rothbard and Hoppe have written about how you know, when you look at the state naked, to quote Murray Rothbard, it's really a very tiny minority of the entire population. And so really, if you can get the majority of the population to recognize these ideas and see the state naked, just like Rothbard and see that what just regard them as criminals, just like we do now regard thieves and other uh, sort of gangs as criminals. And so that plays a role in inhibiting those criminals from growing. That's a big step forward, and I think that might be the first step forward. Um, so when you talk about the role of the intellectual, to me, I think it's to spread these good ideas and to explain to more and more people how libertarian ethics and also praxeology and Austrian economics are our best ideas in their relevant domains. And I think without that, I don't see how we'll ever uh, defeat the state or overcome the state. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. I uh... – that's possible what you just said. I, I've, I've seen that um, in my own life, and I try not to be partial to this because uh, I don't want to be biased, but it seems to me that the basic understanding, this, this political awareness of the true nature of the state, uh, this sort of cynicism we have about politics now is a good thing. Um, and the sophisticated Austrian way of looking at economics is there in the background and it's percolated up, and maybe it is essential, or maybe it's helped. Um, 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 maybe it's a stepping stone towards what is coming. But I think what's coming has to be natural on its own. Um, but you know, as for as for the Rothbard and Hoppe uh, 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 points, um, I think one reason that everyone now ridicules the idea of monarchies, even in England, people keep saying, "Why do we have a monarch? Who the hell is she?" It's we've sort of overcome the first level of like we've realized that when you have a monarchy or or some kind of worse, more centrally planned state, the distinction between the state and the the people that are ruled, that is the exploiters and the exploited, is more stark. And in fact, you can just go kill a king if he's horrible enough. You might succeed in decapitating the king, and that might make things better. Or as Hoppe points out, at least with a monarchy. Uh, you might get a good king every now and then. I mean, they might be idiots, they might be evil, but every now and then you actually might get a good king. Uh, but in de the problem is we've moved to democracy, and one reason we've moved is because people have grown disillusioned with the the top-down model of the state being a tiny group of people that are exploiting everyone else. So the state has adopted democracy, which everyone here has been propagandized into thinking was pro progress or a move forward, a step forward in society. But it's not necessarily completely a step forward because the state has become dispersed. It's not clear-cut anymore. Like you will hear people say this. They'll say that, well, you can't complain if you have to pay taxes or even your son is drafted into the Vietnam War because we're, we are all the government. You'll hear this. I mean it's, it's unbelievable, this propaganda, and we're all the government because we drive on government roads and we all get to vote. 
and any one of us might be working for the government. You know, and now public school teachers are part of the state. I mean, you can't think of them easily as evil. They're the miss, you know, they're they're Miss Helen down the road who teaches your kid how to read and do math. Um, they also help keep them uh, in basically a quasi prison because there's truancy laws and public schools, and you know, it's all mixed up. And the, that advantages the state because. Most people we know have several relatives who work for the government or their businesses depend upon government contracts. We depend upon government police, government uh, social security services, government roads, uh, electricity, water. So they've spread their net and they've wormed their way into society so that it's harder to identify who the state is. Um, you know, The mayor of Houston, is he the state? Uh, some councilman, uh, the dog catcher, you know, a policeman, a fireman, and and so I think people, the only way to avoid this problem is to start thinking more conceptually. So we have to start identifying functions: the state versus the private society. It's too stark and it it ignores fuzzy and gray boundaries, but it's the only way to conceptually understand. What the state is, and then you use economics to say, listen, when you have this state, number one, you're going to have all kinds of perverse incentives and effects set in, right? Because you're going to start having special interest groups emerge that try to get their share of the pie, because if they don't do it, someone else will, and they're paying their taxes anyway, so they might as well. So it leads to the squabbling that we have now. Um, public choice economics helps to explain a lot of this, right? The prisoners, just the prisoners' dilemma by itself. Um, combine that with the abysmal level of education and economic literacy because of government schools and the brainwashing we have now, right? We've replaced God and King with the flag and the founding fathers. So everyone shifts their, their gaze towards, towards the new heroes, and they become patriotic about that. It gives their life meaning. Um, so this is the problem that we have now. This is what we're living in. At the same time… We have a very strong underlying free market economy. We have tremendous wealth being produced by individuals working outside these these bullshit strictures, right? Producing goods, inventing new techniques, researching, um, expanding the division of labor and the borders where trade happens. And this is happening at the same time that the state is being parasitical on it. So my, the image I always imagine is like this strong Mustang or a stallion. Running, 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 and it's got all these little, these little pygmy parasites clinging to it, trying to slow it down, and they do slow it down. But he keeps getting stronger and faster, and then, but his blood feeds a stronger and faster set of pygmies, right, that are clinging onto him. So the question is, which one's going to win the race? Will they finally bring him down, and everyone dies together in some kind of gray goo holocaust? Which may be why we don't see life in outer space because every society that gets to a certain point kills itself. It could be. Or or I think gradually the state will become – we'll just ignore them. They'll become little, little fleas that we ignore. We don't care about the state. We're so powerful and so strong. The private society just emerges as the natural way of things in societal and human evolution. That's my science fiction uh, side <laughs> speaking, <laughs> my my slight optimistic side, but we're talking thousands of years from now. 
Well, who knows? Uh, the the growth of knowledge and the growth of wealth are inherently unpredictable phenomena. So, uh, who knows what will be actualized in reality in the future? Correct. By the way, before I forget, because I want to move on to, and you've hinted at this, the argumentation ethics and your own contribution, I do want to say, when you said that you sort of implied that, okay, we could even concede that anarchy is impossible, but still it's wrong, I would disagree with that. I don't think we should ever concede that an anarcho-capitalist order is impossible. First of all, because if anything is not forbidden by the laws of nature, then it's possible. Namely, there's no law of nature that, that states coercion is required to solve such and such problem. Freedom is always required, in fact, to solve any problem. And in fact, when you say, if you were, not that you were explicitly conceding this point, but if you, if one does concede that anarchy is impossible, then the opponent of anarchy could always say, well, therefore it is moral to have a state because we'll need it to solve such and such problem that can't be solved in an anarcho-capitalist order. Right. And that's what, yeah. And I don't agree that it's impossible. Um, um, I mean, I think Rothbard was asked this one time. He said, what if, what if human nature is such that if we abolish a state, a new state will emerge in 20 years and we'll ha we're back to where we started from? And Rothbard's answer was, well, at least we will have had a glorious holiday from the state. But, you know, that's not really my, uh, that's not my take on it. Um, most people are not precise thinkers, they're not political scientist so they're not careful in what they say anyway so for example you'll hear the the retort well if you like anarchy too much why don't you go move to uh i don't know somalia or something like that right it's just like a, it's not a serious retort it's flippant so you have to understand what the state is what private society is and what anarchy is so to me anarchy doesn't mean a utopia it doesn't mean the absence of crime it means uh, the absence of any meaningful institutional crime that is widely recognized institutions of crime. So even in a stateless order that we imagine, uh, everything is handled privately. Even that could be not perfect. There could be mistakes made from occasion. But even then, you could have occasional private crime. But then we're just dealing with the bandits, and that would be the point of having a private justice system and a private defense force to deal with the bandits. But it wouldn't be dealing with other governments because everyone recognizes in society enough that that these institutions can't emerge because institutions require legitimacy in the eyes of the public because, as you pointed out earlier, necessarily it's a smaller group of people that are parasitically you know, living off of the masses below them, right? the exploited classes. And the only way they can get away with this because they're, they're necessarily less powerful because they're smaller in numbers… Is to is to brain is to propagandize them to brainwash them, which is what they've done with the state and with democracy. I think that those shackles could be falling off because uh, now we have instantaneous communication, we have cell phones, we have we're soon going to have three D printing and all kinds of we're going to have robots and maybe AI. We're going to have so many things everyone is self sufficient with eventually, or that you don't need the state for. You can have private reputation agencies, you can have your own defense force, you can have machines growing your food, you can have a robot surgeon in your basement doing your abortion or giving you, you know, a cancer treatment. I, I just think that eventually anything that the state claims to provide us is going to become more and more trivial. Uh, you, why do you need government roads if you have you know your own rocket ship or your own your own flying car? 
you know, these things. So the government's just going to fade into irrelevancy. People might not even bother to get rid of it because it's just not worth the effort. They, they don't mind paying two percent of their billion dollar a year income to these people that keep running around claiming to be the government. I don't. This is my utopian vision of the world. So um, I, I do. I would not concede that anarchy is impossible. I think it. It's clearly possible. Logically, it's possible. It's possible to have a society where there's no states. It's possible to have a society where there's no crime. It's unlikely because in a society of 100 percent libertarians, then the one guy who's born who's a bad guy, he'll, he'll be able to make out like a bandit because no one's going to be locking their doors. You know, So there will always be an economic incentive for a couple of bad apples to spring up. But we'll deal with these guys, and they won't be the end of civilization. Right, and the point is that… Society or the people in society, to be precise, will regard him as a bandit, and so there's not a likelihood of him or her becoming this massive institution or founding. Exactly. Them. Yeah. No, exactly. They will always be marginal. They'll be poorer than us. They'll have less resources than us. Uh, they will be ostracized from community. It's the, this is this is why some societies prosper um, over others. I mean, Hoppe has this point about there's a paradox in that. The nation states that tend to have more liberal internal policies in our sense, like free trade, property rights, they tend to have a more hostile or imperialist foreign policy. And the reason is like the United States is one of the freest – is the richest country in the world because of our size and our relative liberal policies internally, domestically. But that gives the government so many resources. Like to to have the biggest military in the world by far, which gives which gives the rulers the temptation to to control other other nation states or even to invade and to to be um, you know basically an empire. So the, whereas the Soviet Union, which was like a totalitarian hell state during its fifty or so years of 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 what it did to those people on the interior of the country. They were basically being impoverished because of the system, so the government could only mount so much of a military threat, so they tended to be less imperialist because of that. Um, so there's a paradox there. Right, yes, I remember Hoppe writing that. That was uh, one of his many genius arguments. Uh, the other one you mentioned, of course, is from his uh, – when he talks about – some of the flaws that democracy has that monarchy doesn't in uh, Democracy, the God that Failed. It's a genius book because democracy really is one of these uh, gods that you really can't question. I mean, you see all the time people use democracy or democratic almost always in a positive with a positive connotation. Right. And it justifies like, you know, democratic socialism. Like, oh, it's democratic. OK. Well, what's funny is I noticed that, I mean, you know, some of the annoying Republicans and libertarians sometimes point out that we don't live in a democracy. We live in a republic you know, because the word democracy is never mentioned in the Constitution. It's kind of a stupid argument because we do have a democracy, of course. We have a, we have a republican democracy because we have the vote. We have the franchise. We have politicians elected by popular vote. All right, so we do have a type of democracy. Yeah, the Bill of Rights tries to put some restraints on it, the separation of powers, but uh, it uh, I heard it was Nancy Pelosi or one of these one of these types the other day when they're talking about the impeachments and all these things. She she was saying that we need to preserve and so she quoted from like Madison or one of the founders and they kept saying, oh, it was the Benjamin Franklin line. Oh, what have you given us? A republic if you can keep it. 
So she said that, and then like the very next sentence, she goes, so we need to preserve our democracy. It was like, you just said the word republic. <laughs> you quoted the founders, and then you, you instantly equated it with the word democracy. So this is how they think. They don't even think there's a problem with making the equation um, because we associate liberty with democracy now. Uh, and the rest of the world is starting to do so too, which is, I think, uh, a, a problem. You also mentioned that people will say anarchism is utopian, by the way. And I just wanted to say quickly, and sort of a logical fallacy point, that's not an argument. I, I see this a lot. People will just say, and it's related to, people will say, oh, such and such is an extreme position, or it's a utopian position, or it's a far left or far right position, or such and such person is ideological. These are all just smears or some form of ad hominem or related. Uh, I agree. They're not, Saying they're something's not extreme is not an argument. Not only that, a question is not an argument. So quite often someone will say something like, you know, you make a point. You, you say, explain why a given law is unjust, like the drug war. And then someone will say, well, well, what about the children? Or they'll say, well, 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 how would you handle the problem of this? It's like – so they think that asking a question is some kind of counterargument. I get this with IP all the time. People say – I'll say, well, we should abolish patent and copyright for the following reasons. And they'll say, well, who's going who's gonna to make movies? It's like, well, that's an interesting question, but is that supposed to be an argument? You see, what they do is that they, they, they ask – Loaded questions that have uh, their premise baked in. So it's it's. I don't think they're doing it intentionally all the time. So it's not necessarily dishonest, but it's definitely an invalid response because it's changing the subject in a sense. It's like we're talking about what laws are justified and why intellectual property doesn't fit into a rational uh, property rights scheme, and they instantly respond with, uh, "Explain to me." How many books on poetry will be, will be written in 25 years? I mean, why? Why do we get on this topic? I, I can't predict how many books on poetry will be written. How will how will poets be paid? I don't know. What's the relevance of the question? So oh, I think asking exactly. questions and using them as arguments is another illegitimate tactic. Yes, and a lot of it stems from what I call economic creationism. I, so to go to. Um, Leonard Reed's, I think his name is, uh, his SAI pencil. I mean, if you were to explain to someone how a pencil was made without any government legislation or top-down control, before pencils were invented, let's say, you try to explain how they will be invented in the future, I mean, no one would believe you. And yet that's exactly, pencils are made through this bottom-up, beautiful process. And uh, to, to deny this just because it's counterintuitive or because you don't think such um, emergence spontaneously of order and knowledge creation and wealth creation is possible. That's just economic creationism. Yeah, and actually, there's a new a new take on that out by uh, Julie Borowski. I think she's got this kind of children's illustrated book called uh, "Nobody Knows How to Make a Pizza." So I think it's like for kids, but it's the same kind of theme. Uh, everything that goes into making an actual pizza, like no one person, you know, understands all that, which is probably true as well. And this is what gives me a little bit of optimism: is that I do think that. Over time, people see through the tricks, and then, of course, the state cal the state reacts, right? They adapt. So people are skeptical of kings now, right? Uh, but so now it's democracy. Um, but people, but now we have cell phone cameras and the internet and encrypted communications. So the news of a government crackdown doesn't take six months to learn. It's instant. It's live. The Hong Kong thing is a good example. It's hard to tell what's going to happen there. But governments are, are coming up against 
uh, knowledge, right, hurting their plans. Um, and people are always skeptical of politicians. They know that they're not as efficient. People see the wonders the free market gives us with iPhones and with the internet and all these safety features we have in cars. And yeah, the government tries to step in and take credit. They'll say, oh, well, we mandated seatbelts in cars and uh, – we inspect the meat supply, so that's why it's safe to eat meat that the private guys are providing to you, things like that. But I think over time, a certain natural cynicism sets in, and so that's my hope is that that will just uh, – uh, and so what I was going to say earlier about uh, – so I think there are certain uh, empirical teaching moments in history. So I always thought that when communism collapsed in 1990 or so, um, it was a huge blow to this – overt socialist communist movement. It didn't kill it. We have Bernie Sanders running for president. He theoretically could win, which would be unbelievable. But um, but by and large, socialism or at least communism has been discredited. Um, and then on the other hand, capitalism is seen as – everyone admits that's how you produce the goods, even if people think it needs to be regulated and limited. So there's like – there's probably a level of general economic awareness of the relative merits of a centrally planned economy versus a roughly free market economy, even among the average population now. That's probably greater than it was 50 years ago because of the collapse of socialism and because the West is just so much richer and everyone wants to be the West. I mean, China's trying to become more capitalist without giving it a name. We're not, we're not. Saying that we're we're going to become more like China, people want to immigrate to America, not to China. You want to go to university? Where do you want to go? To the U.S. or to China? Um, China is not really a major superpower in that regard, for that for partly that reason. So, ideas and institutions make matter, and they can change over time, and they depend upon the kind of cooperation, the tacit cooperation of the of the populace. So let's switch a little bit back to – let's go to argumentation ethics now uh, because I want my listeners to really hear these arguments if they haven't heard them before because I think they are one of the most profound uh, discoveries or creations in the last uh, several decades in intellectual thought. So first of all, I read one of your essays and you said you used to be a sort of natural rights guy. But you came to realize that that was actually dogmatic. And when I read that, I, I was thinking, you know, the natural rights position, which, and correct me if this isn't it, but it's basically just individuals have a right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, something like that. But when you think about it, that is just a, an assertion by fiat. It has no explanatory content. It's explanationless. Whereas argumentation ethics is a completely explanatory way of justifying the libertarian ethic. Uh, I don't know if that was exactly – If I, I don't know if I've ever criticized something for being dogmatic <laughs> per se. Um, uh, I, I mean I would say descriptively that the natural law view is roughly right, that we do have rights by virtue of our nature, um, and that that's the best way to understand. I just think that that can be combined – I think, number one, that can be combined with a consequentialist analysis. I think they have to be. I don't, I don't – I'm not one of these guys who thinks that – um, a principled approach to matters is one way of doing it, but the other way is a, a consequentialist way. Now, utilitarianism, which I view as a subset of consequentialism, 
Okay. Consequentialism means you you value um, the goodness of a given policy or proposal by what effects it will produce, which I think is reasonable enough. No, none of us can disagree with that. Utilitarianism boils it down and say, oh, you measure utils and satisfaction. I think that's all nonsense as the Austrians have shown. But consequentialism dovetails with a principled understanding of human nature because we do – we are practical beings. We live in a practical world. Um, the, the, the problem with natural rights or natural law arguments, I think, is really more of a philosophical or logical one. It's that you're trying to derive an ought from an is, and what I mean by that – and David Hume pointed this out a few hundred years ago. The idea is that um, I can say that um, – because this ball is made of carbon, because we know the properties of carbon, therefore it will have certain magnetic properties or something like that. So that's like a factual argument. You can reason from fact to fact, and the, the reason it could be deductive, like some of Newton's arguments about um, gravity or some of Einstein's arguments, uh, some of his thought experiments, or it could be totally empirical, like we've measured these results. This is what we found so far. Here's the… Here's the size of the universe as far as we know it, but these are all factual matters we're discussing. Um, but when you're talking about prescriptive matters, like prescription means a prescription about what you should do, recommendation about what you should do. So you're in the realm of oughts or shoulds, the realm of ethics, the realm of morals, the realm of laws, and the realm of rights. All these things are on the normative side of things. What Hume pointed out is… You see that there's a, a switch being made in these arguments where you, you just say, okay, human nature is this. It's a factual statement. Humans are social creatures. They have free will. They wander around the world. They need resources. They, they live finite lifestyles. They have a certain amount of intelligence. You know, These are the characteristics that humans have. These are facts. And then you say, and therefore, you should not murder another kid, another person. Well, you go from an is to an ought. And there's a logical gap there because oughts can't be built upon only is it. So that's the that's one of the problems with the natural rights reasoning. Um, a second problem is that human nature is very uh, adaptable and very vague and very diffuse. Uh, that's why we're so dominant on the earth because we've adapted to so many different uh, uh, situations and environments. Um, so it's hard to say, and, and we know that different societies have had different um, social rules. They, they, there's been polygamy. There's been, um, you know, all kinds of different cultures, and some of them survive, some don't. But it's hard to say the the way people should act just because of the way our human nature is. So natural rights reasoning only gets you so much, and then you always have to build an ought based upon an is, which means that what you're really doing is you can only build oughts upon previous oughts. So you're sneaking in one without explicitly saying it. So one way to get around that is to have – you have a community of people. It's a subset of humanity, and they're all in a certain club, let's say, and by virtue of being a member of that club, they all agree on certain – the value of certain things. So let's say you, you have a bunch of uh, Star Trek fans at a Star Trek convention or Dungeons & Dragons players or Monopoly game players. It doesn't matter. They're all there. They value this you know, or chess players. Um, it wouldn't make any sense for two Star Trek fans to sit – for one of them to say, you shouldn't be here because Star Trek is stupid. 
It's like, yeah, but we're all here at this convention because we're the ones who actually like Star Trek. So the point is everyone can take for granted that we all value Star Trek, right? The lore or whatever, or Lord of the Rings, it doesn't matter. We can take that for granted and then we could then we could have an argument. Okay, okay, what is the actual top limit of warp drive in Star Trek universe? And you could have this discussion and people have fun doing this kind of stuff. But it's based upon they have a common shared set of values. Now those are arbitrary. That's just what some people happen to like. Uh, or some games like polo or, or chess or football or whatever. But so what Hoppe did was he said, listen, I have a different type of natural rights argument. It's not one that tries to build an ought from an is, but instead it steps back and thinks about um, – and by the way, I came across this when I was a law student in 1988, and I was a libertarian, um, fond of the natural rights ideas because they – dovetail with the consequentialist ideas most of us have if you have a little bit of e economic literacy etc and i read his article his article um, in the in, in liberty magazine it was a symposium where he came out with his argumentation ethics and to me it blew me away and i've always been fascinated by it and studied it ever since and i then it helped inspire me to come up with um, some kind of complementary views, my estoppel stuff. I've just where this is where I came across it. So Hoppe came up with this because he was a Rothbardian, he was also a Mazesian, but he was also a German, more in the continental tradition. So he was skeptical of, you know, which means he's more into rationalism, deductive proofs. So he was kind of skeptical of some of the Aristotelian natural law type arguments because of this is ought problem, and he was influenced by his. His teacher, um, Habermas, who's a famous left-leaning philosopher in Germany, um, who had come up with something like argumentation ethics himself. So Hoppe was inspired, inspired by that and his knowledge of praxeology, economics, radical libertarian ideas. And he came up with this argument that, well, the community of people that matters is… Anyone that would ever engage in an argument, which is like a serious discourse or justification where people are trying to figure out what norms or laws or rules should apply to our community. In other words, his, his, his insight was we can figure out what law what, – what rights people have by realizing that this question can only be decided in a cooperative enterprise known as argumentation. But everyone who participates in argumentation, by virtue of doing this, instead of having physical violent conflict, is already accepting certain, certain underlying norms, which I call uh, grund norms or basic norms after the legal theorist Hans Kelsen. Uh, Hans doesn't use all this language, but I'm just restating some of it here. So the idea is that if you understand that no – norm proposal, right? So no proposal for what rules should govern our interaction, which basically is what property rights should be considered just. None, n nothing could ever be done except uh, – nothing could ever be justified except something proposed in an argument that is by a group of people that are cooperating with each other. And by cooperating, that means that these people have already accepted necessarily certain basic norms for how they interact with each other. Like they necessarily accept the value of peace over conflict. Otherwise, they wouldn't be having a discussion. And there's other ones like this. The point is that argumentation 
is not a value-free activity. It's, it's an activity where the participants, by definition of what it means to be in an argument, already have certain values. And you can appeal to these values just like two guys at a Star Trek convention could, could just take for granted the fact that they all like Star Trek. But here, this is the fundamental nature of argumentation. The idea is that you could never in principle have any kind of norm uh, justified except by argumentative justification because that's the only way to communicate with other people and to give reasons and to discuss the basis for your reasons and to come up with a, an agreement on who who has the better argument or what the right answer is. And so the point is that no norm that's proposed could ever be true if it contradicts these basic norms that you presuppose. So this is his whole argument is that if you argue for anything except libertarianism, like which basically in his framework is socialism, if you argue for any use of aggression, whether it's private or institutional, then you're 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 proposing something that's contradictory to what we're already assuming by virtue of being members of an argumentative um, activity, and therefore it's impossible to ever justify a socialist norm. So. This is similar to my observation about the irrelevance of the impossibility of anarchism, not because I think anarchy is impossible, but because when you say you're an anarchist, you're making a normative statement that it's unjust for the state to commit aggression. You're not making a prediction that it can't do it. You're saying it's unjust. Likewise, what Hans is saying, what Hoppe is saying, is that you simply can't justify socialist norms. Or, or aggression or criminal criminal norms. They just can't be justified. Now, you might say, so what? I don't care if it's justified. I'm going to take your money anyway. That's fine, but all that means is it's possible for you to commit aggression. It doesn't mean that it's justified. If we're going to have a discussion about what's justified, then if you show that something's not justifiable, that matters. And ultimately, the only thing that remains is the basic natural – uh, property rights allocations that libertarians believe in. Only those are not filtered away by this process. They are the only ones that remain standing. So what it means is that libertarianism, the libertarian set of values and, and rules, basically the non-aggression principle and the related property rights rules, um, are the only ones that can be justified because everything that's contrary to them can be shown to be literally unjustifiable. So that's the argumentation ethic, and a lot of people have problems with it. There's a lot of things you can quibble about, but that's what his his idea is, and it, it, it totally fascinated me. Um, like I had dreams about it, you know, for for years, that kind of thing. Yes, uh, it actually blew me away as well. So I was sort of uh, I became an anarchist through David Friedman's book, The Machinery of Freedom, and I had never even heard of praxeology or Austrian economics. And early in my grad school days, I was reading Hoppe's um, Economics and Ethics of Private Property. I think that was from, I think he wrote it in the 90s. 93. 93, okay, thank you. And first he was using this word, praxeology. I said, what is this? And that, that entire book just completely blew my mind. And yeah, the argumentation ethics, like I said, I think it's one of the greatest uh, creations or discoveries in intellectual thought in uh, the last several decades. And, you know, unfortunately, and for the reasons you and I probably agree on, it's not well known, but I'm, you know, we're all doing our part and trying to spread it. Now, how does this hoppy before we get to your 
extension of argumentation ethics. How does the original Hoppian version extend to cover um, unknown, unowned scarce resources and the sort of homestead principle and the first um, user, first owner uh, rule of property rights? Right. So uh, it's sort of a complex uh, interconnected set of observations. Um, the first one is that if you accept that what he's initially done is justified um, um, basically body ownership or self-ownership because each person is confronting the other and agreeing not to hit each other. They're not coercing each other into accepting their argument. They're trying to persuade them by the force of reason alone. If, if I hold a, you know, a club up and say, admit that I'm right or otherwise I'm going to kill you, that's not an argument. That's just coercion. So the implicit presupposition of peace, right, and of agreeing to let the argument settle these matters, right, agreeing to let the better reasons settle these matters, is an implicit recognition of each other's property rights in their own body. Okay, so that's body ownership. Um, but you can see how this argument itself is a mixture. It's not a purely deductive, performative contradiction type argument. It's also mixed with with empirical. Um, observations about the way the world works, about the fact that we are human actors that have human bodies, that we live in a certain space in the world, that we're mortal, we're not omnipotent, we can do damage to each other. In short, that our bodies are scarce resources, right? So our bodies are scarce resources, and that's why – which is the same thing as to say that we're not immortal gods. Uh, this is why the entire idea of the Garden of Eden – and God is practically logically almost nonsensical. But the point is, <laughs> this is uh, so the outcome of the first layer of the analysis is that we have scarce resources in our bodies, and argumentation to, to, to come up with a norm about how we deal with each other has to be a peaceful, conflict free activity. Um, but that only makes sense because conflict is possible. And conflict is possible because there are scarce resources in our bodies. So we've come up with this first norm. Um, but again, there's practical necessities we recognize there that we, we're breathing, we're living, we have to have standing room. So it's not just this this isolated abstract argument. It's about human human bodies that actually encounter each other on the face of the earth. Now, that also implies other things. Number one, we need to be alive. To even be doing this, which means we need to have succeeded in life so far, and we're trying to come up with a plan of action that will allow us both to succeed in life and live cooperatively after we go. We're coming up with rules that apply in the future. So all these rules are about human um, success in achieving actions. Right Now, the fact is that humans, when we act, this is the, where praxeology comes in. Humans necessarily have to employ scarce means or scarce resources to act. That is, we use our bodies and our direct control over our bodies to grasp and manipulate other things in this world that we live in. And it's undeniable that we live in a world like this because we, we're three-dimensional beings. We live in a three-dimensional space. We walk around the face of an earth, um, and we have to have standing room. We have to have room to move. We have to have resources that are consumed. We need to use things in the world outside of our bodies just to survive. So anyone that's surviving can't deny the necessity of humans somehow using this vast trove of unowned scarce resources that the world is 
right? This huge garden of not a garden of Eden, but it's a huge garden that we we've we, we're stuck on, right? It's a it's a huge ball of resources. We need to be able to manipulate and use these things just to perform any action. Like if I want to catch a fish, I need to I need to have a pole. To have a pole, I have to grab the pole and use it. And when I catch the fish to eat it, I need to own the fish until I am able to cook it and then eat it. So I, the point is that when people do survive in the world, what they do is they come out into this pristine wilderness of unowned resources, and they start using them. So then the question is, well, what's the status of these things? These, these means, these tools that we've, we've taken from the state of nature and that are part of our uh, operating identity as actors that we use as means to extend our influence over the world. There could be conflict over these things too, just like there could be conflict over our bodies. So this way Hoppe says that the body is a prototype of a scarce resource. It's the ultimate scarce resource because it's identified it's, – it's caught up with your identity as an acting human. In a sense, you are your body. You command your body, but you couldn't exist without a body. So your body is you in a sense, and you are your body. Um, so it's a special type of scarce resource. But nevertheless, the rule is that um, the rule is that he identifies is that when we come together to decide how we should use these resources that other people could use, that is things over which there's conflict, we need a rule that can say answer the question who gets to use it because we want the rule something everyone can agree to we want a rule that it's not just violence right uh, or the force uh, the uh, world of force um, and the question so what it comes down to is who has the best connection to or the direct or the link as he calls it to the resource now on the question of my body versus your body the link is the, your direct control I control my body. I demonstrate my special connection to this resource. You have a special connection to your body, your resource. That's why we have to agree to let each other control our resources and agree to, to not invade that, that control. In the case of these other resources, which we all have to admit need to be ex exploitable, to be exploitable, someone has to use it first. So then the question is who owns this resource? If you don't believe in ownership, then you believe in a war of all against the all. You don't believe in property rules at all. We're talking about violence again. So you have to believe in some property norm that says when there's a conflict over a given external good, who owns it? So the question is if you own it, that means you own it until you don't, which means you own it until you give it away to someone else, which means that if there's any two people that have a dispute over a resource… The first user always has to have priority over the second user. Hoppe calls this the prior-later distinction. If you don't have the prior-later distinction, you don't have property rights at all. You just have possession. You have war. You just have force. So we have to say that someone who has a resource before someone else has a better claim than someone who comes after, which is exactly why theft is wrong. So you see – so the current possession has to be considered to be presumptively – uh, a sign of who has the property right and the resource. And if you trace it back and back and back to the first use, sort of like Mises' regression theorem, you will see that that means the first guy had to have the right to pluck it out of the unknown state of the wilderness, of the commons, which means that homesteading is the first uh, rule 
that gives you your best link to a resource. But because ownership can be transferred by contract, that's the second rule. So whenever you have a dispute over a resource that's not a body, because the dispute over bodies can be answered by the question, whose body is it? Who can, who can directly control it? That's the direct link there. In the case of external resources, the question is, all right, A and B both want this cow. Okay. Cow's a bad example. Let's say the let's say a farmhouse. <laughs> so if A is the one who found this unowned plot of land and built a, a cabin, he's the owner because he has a better claim to it than anyone else. Because he was the first one to exploit it and put his uh, he put a border around it. Put a public ind indication of his claim to it, and he hasn't changed that since he's owned it. Now, on the other hand, if A sold the property to B by contract, now A might still have a better claim than C because C has nothing to do with it. But between A and B, now B has a better claim. He says, I admit, A, you are the first one who found the property, and you transformed it into a cabin and a farm. But then you sold it to me, so that's why now I have a better claim than you. So basically the interplay of contract and, uh, and homesteading or what Hoppe calls original appropriation can answer all of the questions in principle about who should own a resource, and this results in the libertarian private law norms. And then that also ties into the fact that these private law norms, one is justified in enforcing these norms. So one is justified in enforcing his or her own uh, private property ownership rights. Right, because the mean so the meaning of property rights is that uh, the owner, that is the person who has a property right in the resource, he has the the capacity to to grant permission or to deny permission to others. Over the use of this resource. In fact, the reason we we call the resources we call them sort of informally we call them property, which I think is a little bit of a misleading um, uh, term. Uh, the question is not is this is this shovel property? I mean, the shovel is a resource. The question is who has a property right in it, and we tend to call the shovel is your property. But the reason we say that is because. It's a characteristic or a feature or a property of yourself because it's an extension of your control of the world. right? It's a way you grab a means and you use it to do something in the world. So it's a property of your identity. right? Um, and so to own a resource simply means you are the person that has the right to decide who can use it or not, which means that if someone uses it without your consent… It's tantamount – it's trespass. It's basically a violation of your property rights. It's theft, and this is, what, this is, when, this is when you get into more nuanced or, uh, or even difficult areas of, of, of legal theory about what, what kind of response is justified. Now, because these, these resources are intimately bound up with the physical forceful world, like we physically grasp our shovel, and I use it right to plant – I use it to plant a field. Um, I have to physically grasp it, and that's why conflict over its use is possible. If someone else takes the shovel for their own field. Our hands are touching it at the same time, and we have a tug of war, and one of us wins. 
if we could somehow split the shovel into two magically like intellectual property or information, there would be no conflict and no dispute. But the nature of this thing is it can only be used by one person at a time. Okay, So if I have the right to use it with force and someone else doesn't, and I have the right to prevent them from using force, and if the purpose of these rules is to prevent conflict, then this can only mean that I'm entitled to use force to stop you from taking it. If I didn't have the right to use force to stop you from taking it, then the purpose of property rights is pointless, and it doesn't serve to, to, to reduce conflict. It would only mean that might makes right and that we have a, a war of all against all, and everyone just does what they can. They get away with it. They get away with it. They don't. They don't. But the whole purpose, the whole premise of trying to figure out what the property right should be is that one person has the right, the legal right, right? to protect this this resource and to grant or deny permission. If denying permission means I say I don't I don't give you permission, but you can but then the legal system doesn't give me any ability to defend myself with force against it, then it's like having no right at all. So the very idea of having a right necessarily means that the owner um, is entitled to use some kind of force. And then we could talk about what types, whether it has to be institutional, whether you have to go to the police first, whether it can be proportionate or disproportionate, what measures are necessary or, or justified. Those are those are interesting questions. But the, the basic point is that the owner does have right. And if you can think about it like this, I could theoretically put up a tall fence around my property, a barrier, a wall, <laughs> just to keep anyone from getting on there because I control it, because I own it. So if I can do that, I can do lesser things. You know, I can stand there with a gun and say, do not step onto my property or I will shoot you, something like that. That might be disproportionate in some context, but the basic point is that you can use force to defend your property just like you can use force to defend your body from violent attack. Yes, I would disagree that there is – a significant distinction between one's owning one's body and owning external scarce resources because i think a person fundamentally is a mind is uh, some object in the universe that's capable of creating knowledge and explaining all of uh, the reality around him or her and that the body is just another resource that he or she controls uh, so feel free to respond to that. But if not, I want to get to estoppel arguments. Well, yeah, let me respond to that because – and uh, this gets into metaphysics and, and deeper philosophy, and I, I don't know how to answer these. I don't know how to uh, solve these kind of questions. Um, that perspective – you get down to metaphors, and this is how I view things. That's fine that, if that's your way of doing it. But the, the difference I have – and I explain this in, in somewhat detail in my contract theory article from – I want to say 1996, um, which builds on Rothbard's contract uh, theory, um, is is this. Um, you don't need to decide the mystical or religious or philosophical question of whether we have a mind or a soul or something that's distinct conceptually from the body that identifies who you are. The way I think of it legally and praxeological terms is conceptually we can clearly distinguish the identity of the person, that is the actor. We can distinguish that from their body. They're different things. I'm not saying they're disconnectable. 
but they're different things. Just like the mind and brain are different things. They're just different conceptual words. The brain is a physical piece of matter in your skull. The mind is something different. It's I think it's reliant upon your brain. I think it's thrown off by your brain like an epiphenomenon maybe, but they're conceptually different things. I mean you don't ask someone how much their mind weighs, for example. Uh, and when someone dies, the dead body still has a brain, but it doesn't have a mind anymore. So they're just different concepts. That's about as deep philosophically as I think you need to go to sort this stuff out. So what I believe is this. The concept of an actor, we are talking about um, – by the way, it doesn't have to be human, of course. That's why Mises talks about it. But an actor is some kind of physical, corporeal being in this universe that faces this world of scarcity that we live in and that has some control over his body. And that body can manipulate other scarce means in the world to achieve ends. This is generally how I would look at it. Um, the reason I said earlier and the reason Hoppe says in tantalizing stuff in his German stuff um, that the reason you own your body is not that you homesteaded it. It's because you have a direct link to it. And the direct link is your direct – this kind of intimate connection between your identity as a person, however you want to characterize that, and your ability to manipulate, control this body and basically inhabit this body or be associated with this body. Um, so that's why I wouldn't just say the body is just another type of scarce resource, and the, the answer – the reason is you don't homestead your body. To homestead something in the world, you have to already have a body. You have to be an acting being that goes around the world, identifies a scarce resource, understands that it could be useful for achieving certain ends, and you appropriate that resource. You exercise your will to control your body to start using that resource. So you have an, something that was once unowned, and now you've asserted ownership of it. But that – and that is the nature of all these scarce resources in the world. They were previously unowned. Human bodies are different, I believe. I think they're owned not because they were unowned and someone came down and homesteaded them. The only way to imagine that is to imagine like this reincarnation or Christian idea where there's a bunch of souls up in some other dimension, and the souls is disembodied will that jumps into an unowned fetus or baby and takes control of it. The whole thing is metaphysical and religious, and not only that… It's not it, – it's contradictory because by that way of looking at it, the mother is the owner because the mother's body morphed into a body holding this clump of cells in her belly. So she's the owner of that body. It's not unowned. So it's not like a tree in the woods. It's not like an unowned thing. The mother owns it. So why does she give up ownership? I mean by this theory, the mother should be owned the kid, and the parents should be slave owners of their children, which is how some societies have dealt with this. But the libertarian view is no. When the child basically wakes up and has his own will, the age we can, dis we can, we can dispute when the age should be. But at a certain point, the child owns his body not because he homesteaded it. But because he is the body and he controls it directly, he has a better connection to the body than anyone else. So his direct link outweighs the others. The, the problem I have with the idea that the body is like other resources is that it, it, it would mean that we homestead the body. But then who's homesteading the body? Some disembodied soul? And again, the body's not unowned like a scarce resource. So I see tons of problems with the analogy between bodies and non-bodies. So in my legal framework, 
I view the body, ownership of the body, the way we acquire rights in the body, and the way we can lose rights in the body. Right? That's why I believe in inalienability. So by contract, you can get rid of your television or your car, but you can't get rid of rights to your body by contract. You can get rights, rid of rights to your body by committing an act of aggression because you forfeit your rights in that case. So this to me leads to the whole question of inalienability and these issues. So that's why I think we would disagree on that unless – I mean I would – people that want to read more on this, read my contract theory article and then read my article, How Do We Come to Own uh, Ourselves, which goes into this a little bit. And I will definitely link to that below. So – Let's go because I don't want to spend too much time going down the rabbit hole of, of the, uh, who own, how do you come to own your own uh, body first, although we could maybe come back to it. But let's go to now your estoppel theory. Basically, that's an extension of Hans Hermann Hoppe's argumentation ethics. So why don't you please give us an outline of that theory? Yeah, it's uh, – it, when I was in law school, as I said, I was uh... – I was an engineer, so I was I loved law school that I, I was freed from equations and this stuff and could think in human terms about all the things that interested me, right? Law, economics, and these matters. And uh, I think coincidentally, I was taking contracts law at the same time that that Hoppe's uh, argumentation ethics came to my attention. And I soon after was studying the concept of estoppel, which is a contractual idea, which is it's it's the it's like an alternative way to enforce a contract. Like usually a contract is in the common law is um, you have a bargain between people, you have a meeting of the minds, and one person exchanges something for the for something else, the other person gives up, and there has to be consideration. So it has to be A and B each give each, each other something of value. They don't have to be the same value, but they have to make an exchange. That's called consideration, like the regular theory of contract, which I disagree with, by the way, now because of Rothbard. But there are exceptions made because that theory is too rigid, and there are certain cases where everyone thinks the outcome is, is unjust because some of these criteria are not satisfied. And one would be where um, you made a, a representation to someone, like you told them this was the fact of the world, this is the way things are. And they relied upon what you represented, and and then they suffered a loss, and then they sue you for breach of contract. And then your defense would be, we don't have a contract because, for example, there's no consideration. Well, then the law in the courts of equity in England, they invented, they invented an, uh, an exception called estoppel, which is, well, if you misrepresented something, you led someone to – rely upon it, then even though their their contract breach lawsuit against you is technically flawed, we're going to prevent you from asserting that defense which or stop you because it would be unjust because you're the one who made the misrepresentation. In other words, you're going to be held to stick by your story that you made earlier. Okay. There's all kinds of examples you could give, but um, uh, like if, if some guy shows up at your house to show to paint your house, but he's supposed to paint the neighbor's house, and you see he, he's he's making a mistake, he's painting your house, and you pull up and you realize, oh, this guy's about to give me a free paint job. So you wave at the guy, you smile at him, and you drive off to work. You don't tell him, oh, you've made a mistake, 
stop what you're doing. You're painting the wrong house. That poor guy paints your house all day long. Now, you didn't actually have a contract with him, but you did sort of mislead him, right? And you got a good result out of it, and it's to his detriment because he's out of his materials and it's his time and all that. So if he sues you for the cost of the paint job, normally you could say we didn't have a contract. But the law would say, well, you're a stop from making that defense, and therefore his bare claim goes through. you got to pay him. I'm not even saying if I agree with that in the common law, but this is what arose. And I was studying that, and I thought to myself, well, that's that's a way to look at the the symmetry of the libertarian understanding of rights, which is the non-aggression principle. Right, The core way we state it is that it, you can you can you can you can never initiate violence, which means. It's not wrong to respond with violence, that is, like defensive, reta- defensive, uh, defensive retaliation, right? So that's why libertarians are not pacifists. We don't think it's, it's immoral to use force to defend your rights, but we do think it's wrong to start force, to initiate force. So there's a certain symmetry there, and this is the reason why we're libertarians, and we take that really consistently. Like This is why your, your regular person would say… Well, we all believe in, in the right to property and the right to free speech, but let's add some more rights to this list. Let's have a right to welfare and a right to an education and a right to a home. They think you can just add rights infinitum, add infinitum, but they don't understand that once you start adding positive rights, they necessarily subtract from the negative rights. I mean, in Hillel Steiner's term, all rights are compossible. They have to butt up against each other and not in free. You don't have to balance rights because rights can never conflict, but they will conflict. If you have positive rights, um, that's why the symmetry of the libertarian view and the, and the consistency and the understanding of economics leads us to our, our kind of hyper consistent um, views. And we say, no, you can't have you can't have government funded education. You can't have the government just forgive student debts. Uh, all these things are not added to our set of rights; they take away from rights, right? Um, and so. This is why there's a certain symmetry. So you can you can only respond to initiation force, and you, you're not entitled to initiate force. And it occurred to me that the estoppel reasoning sort of mirrors that. So I'm thinking like, and I think it occurred to me because I had just read the Hoppe stuff about argumentation ethics, and it's it's similar to that in a way. So my basic insight was, well, the reason that aggression is unjustifiable is because the aggressor can't object coherently if force is used against him by his victim, right? Because the, the victim can object. I can say, I don't want you using force against my body because th- he's done nothing to contradict his making that – this statement of preference. But the aggressor has. He has committed an act of aggression himself. He has acted on the rule. Now, this is where… Uh, Hoppe's argumentation ethics borrows heavily on Kant and his universalizability idea, and so does mine because what you have to identify the maxim or the rule of the action. And w- when an aggressor takes what he wants by force, he's acting on various rules. He's acting – or maxims. He's acting upon the maxim, uh, I don't need to respect people's rights, or I can take what I want, or if one person wants someone else's body… They're entitled to do what they want. I mean, 
there's base, there's different ways to characterize it, but he's basically acting upon a rule which validates the use of force against someone even if they object. That's basically what he's doing. Given that he's acted on this rule and it's actually caused harm to someone, they've in a sense detrimentally relied upon it because it's caused them harm because he's invaded their body and used it without their consent, and they objected to it showing that they didn't prefer that. Then if they do the same back to him, he has no objection. So we would say he's a stopped, not legally but morally a stopped. In other words, his argument is flawed. He you, he can't he he can't coherently say that it's okay for me to hit him, but it's not okay for him to hit me back. He's got to either admit he did something wrong, which he didn't have the right to do, in which case he's admitting that the victim has some kind of uh, right to respond, some kind of retaliation or retribution or something like – or restitution, something like that. Or he's saying, no, I think it's okay for everyone to do whatever the hell they want, in which case he's not coherently objecting to being punished. He just he, – in other words, to object, he has to step into the arena of making moral arguments that are consistent and sincere, which is sort of like the Hoppe argumentation ethics idea. Of distinguishing between uh, coerced arguments and real and genuine arguments. So that was my argument, and I built upon it in terms of property rights as well, like Hoppe did, and I blended it with his. And uh, so that was my way of looking at it. I think in a way they're they're similar arguments. It's just a different way of it's a different way of showing why aggression can never be coherently justified. Hoppe shows it in one way. In a general term, I show it by focusing upon any real context between an actual victim and an actual aggressor, showing how the aggressor can't coherently object to some kind of legal response to his aggression. Legal or moral? Because to me, it was more um, – more fundamentally, it's about the morality of it, and the legality of it is sort of an emergent consequence. Yeah, that's a difficult question. Um that's a whole nother topic about whether the concept of rights is is directly a personal moral one. I mean the way you the way you flavor the argument is yeah, you abstract out society, you just imagine two people um, and what they're justified in doing. But as a practical matter, we're, we live in a, a community in a society, and we, we tend to come up with arguments about what types of actions are right or wrong. So we can persuade others to either help us or to, uh, or to have an institutional legal system that 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 helps enforce these rights. Um, I would, for anyone interested in that particular question, I, I am prone towards the view of uh, Douglas, um, the two Dougs, Douglas Rasmussen and Douglas Denoyal, who are sort of neo-objectivist philosophers, and they've written uh, some. Fascinating books, one of which is Liberty and Nature, and there's one or two sequels to it. And in those books, they they characterize rights as what they call meta norms, not as direct norms, but meta norms. And the way I understand that is, you think of a right as a guideline to what the law should be, not necessarily a direct moral guideline to what you your actions should be. And I, I'm still working through this myself. I tend to think this is the best way to look at it, um, and one way to see that is um, most people would say that 
not everything you do that is within your rights is necessarily moral. So, for example, if you're if you're cruel to your grandmother for no reason, that's immoral, but it's within your rights. You didn't violate her rights. It's within your rights. So rights don't prevent you from being immoral. So that means that the concept of, of, of morality is a broad concept, whereas the concept of rights is at best a, a proper subset of morals. right? And that's how most libertarians would think about it if they were pressed to think about it. They would say that, okay, rights are a subset of morals, and by that they mean not everything that's wrong should be made illegal, which is what your average person doesn't understand because if you say, why is cocaine – why, why should cocaine be illegal? They'll say because you shouldn't do cocaine. <laughs> you might be right. You should not take hard drugs. It's immoral It's immoral to destroy your life and your body by using cocaine. But even if that's true, it doesn't mean it should be illegal. right? So we libertarians carefully distinguish between uh, law or rights and morality. So at best, we view it as a subset. Now, the more I thought about it, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure there's subsets. I think they might be um, – just intersecting sets where most things that are rights violations are immoral but not necessarily. So just like um, an action is not necessarily moral because it's rightful. Yeah, I'm just saying – I mean and I haven't thought this out a lot. I haven't written much about it, uh, but just as not every action that is rightful is moral, um, I'm not sure that every action that is um, – that is a violation of rights is necessarily immoral, and this flows from this idea of Rasmussen and denial as um, as rights being meta norms. By being meta norms, that what they means is a right. When you identify what a right is, what you're saying is what legal response or what legal rules, what laws would be justified. So what you're saying is what you would be justified in using force to defend, right? Either by yourself or through the legal system um and so that's why i'm a little bit cautious about saying that like the estoppel context or, or the argumentation ethics context is necessarily um about what you personally should do um because remember when you when two people are having a discussion they're trying to come up with the rule that would be justifiable and usually rules or rights that are considered to be the basis of law. So you could imagine a situation where uh, – and I'm not sure if these are just lifeboat situations or others, but in cases of emergency or when law is broken down, uh, it might be immoral for you not to steal a loaf of bread to feed your starving child, um, even though it's a rights violation. It might be immoral to not do that. In this case, you would have a, a break between what's legally justified – and what rights there are on one hand, and then between what the moral action of the person is. And this goes along with some kind of cryptic comments Rothbard makes where he talks about how libertarianism is not about morals, telling people what they should do. So I tend to think the best way to think about the non-aggression principle is it's the model for what institutional laws would be justified. Now, in a, in a cruder situation, on a frontier situation… It's, it's a rough guideline for how we should interact with each other, and that's the picture that we give. But that's – anyway, that's how I 
that's how I see it. Sure, and relatedly, uh, legal laws not only can possibly violate uh, moral principles, but they can also violate uh, ontological principles or the laws of nature. For example, I'm sure there have been laws somewhere about witches, whereas we know that witches are are not uh, real things, as it were. So just because something is legal or illegal doesn't mean it conforms to any of the laws of nature as we know them, whether moral or otherwise. Well, I think that's not exactly my argument, because I'm not talking about legal positivism in the sense of whatever actual laws happen to be enforced in society. I'm talking about a libertarian society where you have uh, the libertarian conception of rights is expressed in law. And in this case, you would you, you just wouldn't have laws against witchcraft or whatever. But you would have laws against murder and laws against theft. So the question is, is theft – because it's a legitimate law and because you could say that people have a right not to be stolen from, does that necessarily mean that when someone violates that right that they're doing something immoral? So then you get into the philosophy of morality, what the purpose of morality is, and I just haven't sorted all this out in my mind. I tend to think that it's better to be rights as metanorms by and large. Um, but I think it doesn't matter except in a few roughly lifeboat scenarios. You can still think of the estoppel argument, and you can think of these discussions as being what rules of interaction should we have as between ourselves. But to the extent you think of them as universal, you do think that they apply not only to you and he, but you, they apply generally to the community at large because they apply to everyone that has the capacity of rationality and being a fellow actor in the community by virtue of that. So they would apply generally to everyone in general. Maybe it's just a maybe it's just a difference on what the question on the question of what what the justified responses should be. So, for example. You know, if I commit armed robbery of a bank, you could even see the death penalty being justified in some cases, or rape, or something like that. Even though it's it seems somewhat disproportionate, it's still an extremely serious, deadly type act, and it merits an extremely serious response. But if I just steal a loaf of bread in the dead of winter from someone's abandoned cabin to feed my kid… And maybe I'll try to go back later and repay them and fix the window I broke. You could see that the response, even under proportionality standards, might be way less severe. And the point is, these question these are questions that will press us whether or not there exists a government or a state, as it were. Correct. I think that's an that's another point. good point. Is yeah. that a lot? Of, yeah, a lot of these difficult situations people imagine. They're not solved by having the state handle it. Uh, you know, if two people are on a lifeboat in the ocean and one of them has to kill the other or eat the other to survive or whatever, that scenario doesn't get made any better by the fact that there's a government that's going to decide how it's handled rather than a pro- – I mean the life is not perfect, right? <laughs> and you can't blame uh, a libertarian system for not handling things that are not just not handleable. Right, and that, that's a point I think that um, we as libertarians need to drive home a lot because you know we're going against a lot of a lot of indoctrination of when there's a problem, the government must solve it. So, do you have a little bit of time to talk about praxeology? I, I don't think it'll take us too long. Sure. Cool. All right. So, 
We talked a little bit about praxeology. I think you defined it once or twice as the science of, well, you didn't, maybe you didn't say the science, but I would say praxeology is the science of person action, not really people, uh, human action, because it's more general than that, in that the laws of praxeology and the implications would also apply to aliens that have the correct or relevant uh, attributes that humans also have. So it's really about people or objects in reality that are capable of explaining the world around them and creating new knowledge. Now, yeah, most cool. Most Austrian economists and libertarian philosophers that I read seem to imply that it's not falsifiable. Would you agree with that? Um, yes, I would. Okay, right. That's kind of what I thought you'd say because it seems like I'm in the minority on this in that praxeology touches on empirical reality. And so it constrains what's possible and impossible in our physical world. For example, the socialist calculation problem makes, uh, even though it's deducible from the action axiom, it says that certain transformations are impossible. Similarly, you have Mises's uh, regression theorem about money that you had mentioned. Uh, you could also imagine the business cycle. The business cycle has a similar character. And finally, we could even throw in Hayek's knowledge problem. Uh, which I think is important. Now, all of these ideas, these deducible theorems, make principle make claims about how reality ought to behave. And so, uh, I think, are, may I ask, are you familiar with constructor theory in physics? And if not, would you like to hear about it? Uh, no, it doesn't ring a bell. Go ahead. Sure. So, because I, I think you actually have a degree in uh, engineering, so you'll probably know some of what I'm about to say. So, what's in the what's called the prevailing conception of physics? The idea is that a theory takes the form of it can predict the evolution of some system given initial conditions and laws of motion. So, it sort of emphasizes predicting where a particular oh, yeah. system okay. right will be. Uh, def yeah. w where the system and the states of the system and the trajectory are s defined. Now, yeah, sort of a type of determinism or something. Yes, yes, it's a type of determinism. De uh, that's definitely true. Whereas something is determined, even in quantum mechanics, the wave function would be determined. Fine, but there are many domains of reality where prediction simply is impossible. For example, uh, evolution by natural selection. Uh, it already incorporates random mutation. And so there's there's no sense in which we predict future species from past species, for example. That's simply not the form that Darwin's theory of natural selection takes in terms of its ability to explain the biosphere and the design uh, in the biosphere. Now, another area... No, but 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 theoretically, theoretically physics could, could predict it, theoretically, according to some theories, right? No. Because... Evolution couldn't, but physics could. No, because it would still be operating at not the level of genes. But this is the point. As soon as you jump to the regularity we see in the biosphere of genes or even species or whatever, you're not just predicting the reductionist wave function that in principle composes all of the higher level systems. So it's, it's literally the evolution of genes is literally unpredictable. Uh, okay. I don't know if I agree with that, but okay. Okay. So 
a similar argu- theory. Okay, so a similar argument can be made for an economy or a society of people with uh, creative minds. Namely, uh, you can't predict their future thoughts or their new ideas or their creative actions in the world. Uh, however, we have a theory about them, namely praxeology, essentially. So, constructor theory is a new fundamental theory in physics uh, whose fundamental principle is that all of the other theories in physics can be expressed in terms of transformations that are possible and transformations that are impossible and why. So, broadly speaking, this new theory can incorporate inherently unpredictable phenomena such as evolution by natural selection and, I think, uh, praxeology. Okay. So, for example, knowledge is fundamental to economics. For, for example, um, let's say you know how to farm and I don't, but let's say we both own the exact copies of the same parcel of land. Let's all else being equal, uh, you know, we know the same stuff, except you also know how to farm. You are wealthier than I am because you are able to, well, you are able to cause more transformations than I can. You can solve more problems than I can. Well, I, yeah. So I wouldn't say economic, I wouldn't say knowledge is fundamental to economics, but it's fundamental to, to successful human action. So the, the two main ingredients of human action, and with this, the privacy logical view is the availability of access to, to means and knowledge about what to do with them. So, yeah. So someone who has more knowledge about the causal laws of the world and what he can do with means and what ends are possible will tend to have more productive uh, actions or more successful, more efficient use of their means. I agree with that totally. Right. Oh, which, thought- which is why I'm against intellectual property because <laughs> intellectual property is the limit on one of the two main ingredients of successful human action, which is knowledge. Sure. Oh, okay, great. Uh, it, it's funny. I thought you were disagreeing at first. Uh, also, yeah, I, I would love to get to intellectual property maybe another time. Definitely. Because I read your book and I enjoyed it a lot. And it, it made me think of things I hadn't thought of before. Like intellectual property is almost totalitarian when, when you start to realize it. You didn't use that word. I did. So No, I agree. You're, you're right. It, it, it would snuff out all life. It would snuff out all human life if it was taken seriously. It right, would kill right. us all. We would die. <laughs> right. So, okay. So constructor theory, it's all about what transformations, as I said, are possible and which are impossible. How uh, scarce resources, if you like, is one way, one special case, how scarce resources can be transformed into final products, under what conditions that is possible. Now, I'm already sort of hinting that there might be a connection to economics. And given and knowledge also has an exact uh, definition in constructor theory. Uh, but I don't want to get too into the weeds on that. Uh, but also, uh, in constructor theory, you can define wealth as the set of all transformations that an entity is capable of causing. Okay, I think that's a different concept of wealth than we have in economics. So it's just... It's just going to lead to confusion to use the same word that has a different meaning or equivocation. Well, what do economists typically mean by wealth? Well, I mean, George Reisman has a that, – that's what his book is about. I, I think wealth, wealth, to my mind, is distinct. So what – when people talk about creating things or being productive, making products, what they really mean is rearranging input resources into – or more valuable configuration. So you take inputs, you rearrange them 
using your knowledge and your availability of means to do that, and you rearrange it into into some configuration that is more valuable. Now, this is a subjective Austrian concept, value, but it's more valuable either to you or to whoever you might sell it to. So wealth means uh, 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 making your existing stock of resources more useful or more valuable. Um, so wealth is – so uh, you can increase your stock of wealth by being successful in your action at, at, at manipulating things and making them more serviceable to yourself or to others. So wealth is just increasing your ability to satisfy demands in the world by having a better stock of consumable goods or intermediate goods. Um, it is transforming them in a way. That's what production is. Trans production is the transformation of input resources into different shapes guided by your knowledge. Uh, I don't see how any of this – that analysis is based upon pure praxeology, and I don't see how it has anything to do with a physics idea of whether the world is deterministic or not. I mean I, Mises talks himself about how from the point of view of God, uh, we can think of everything in terms of possible deterministic laws, possibly. But from human point of view… Our minds are limited, so we have to look at these domains of teleology or human purpose and causality. And w the only way we can understand other human actors from our limited point of view is to view them as actors. So we're talking in the teleological framework, people that have choice, right? They employ means to achieve ends. That's what praxeology is. And I wouldn't agree but that the, the, the lower-level – uh, developments of this basic perspective, like um, uh, the business cycle, um, or or the other the other things you mentioned, they're not purely praxeological because uh, Mises says this explicitly, which is what I admire about him. You take the basic laws of of, of economics, which are all deducible from praxeology, but then you have to apply them to the real world. And if you want to get what he calls interesting results, I actually have a post called Mises uh, Keep It Interesting. So what he says is we introduce contingent facts to have an interesting result. So for example, he says let's assume that a medium of exchange emerges, so we have money. If you have money, which we do, then you need to assume that there's money to do some interesting uh economic analysis. But that result only holds if those contingent assumptions are true. They wouldn't hold in a barter society, which could happen, right? Or if you analyze the results of interventionism, assume there's a central bank or assume that the government has a minimum wage law. I mean, if those things don't obtain in the real world, then the analysis doesn't do any good. Or you could imagine a totally counterintuitive scenario. You could analyze that, but no one would read it because it wouldn't do you any good. It just wouldn't be interesting. So the more higher-level economic analysis of even Austrians is not purely deductive. It, it is empirical in the sense it relies upon certain assumptions about the world. And to the extent those assumptions are true, then that th the result applies if you haven't made any mistakes in your deductive analysis. But they are based upon assumptions, like again, like the money idea. Um, but go ahead with your – the constructivism thing, I, I, I mean personally – I. I'm not a physics expert. I have my own opinions. I am skeptical of the idea. I do tend to think that the entire cosmos is deterministic, despite quantum mechanics, which I'm skeptical of. 
Um, I think that you could predict the evolution of human species, et cetera, if you looked at it on a quark level with a hypercomputer that was good enough to simulate the universe. You know, I don't know if that's theoretically possible because maybe that would, maybe the only way to simulate the universe is to be the universe. I don't know. But theoretically, my point is, you wanna, you might understand the results you get. You just get a bunch of patterns showing what what, what patterns have emerged. But then if you map it back down to the, the organism level, you would see, oh, now there are intelligent cetaceans in the, in the oceans 5,000 years from now or 5 million years from now. Um, you can't predict it using natural selection. I agree. You can't use it using chemistry. But you might be able to predict it using pure math at the quark level. I just don't know if that's possible. So I don't, I, I don't know if we can know whether it's possible or not. I doubt we will ever do it. So we'll probably never know whether it's even possible. I don't know if it's possible to prove one way or the other whether it's possible, if you, know, if you take my meaning. I do. Um, I, if you'd like, I, I'd be happy to send you the uh, foundational paper of constructor theory. And actually, and I know I'm, I'm sort of introducing this idea like very quickly, which is kind of unfair of me, so sorry about that. But uh, there's another paper um, by a physicist, Chiara Marletto, who showed with constructor theory under what conditions uh, life is possible in principle. So... Again, all I'm really saying is that if Austrian, and by the way, Austrian economics is the subset, I think, of praxeology that um, is the quote unquote interesting stuff. Is that correct? Well, that's what Mises said, but I've yet to understand what other subfields of praxeology. I mean, I wrote a post on this. It was like the other fields of praxeology. Like there was one about war or interventionism, but to my mind, it's sort of like people that say, oh, blockchain is – Bitcoin's great, but blockchain is the real thing that's going to revolutionize the world. And to my mind, the entire purpose of blockchain and the only purpose of blockchain is the backbone for an actual digital money. Like I don't even understand what they, what they mean. So to me, praxeology basically is the core of economics, and I don't quite understand – I mean, Mises hinted at a few other things, but they seem to me just to be like, like if you say, it's, oh, it's an economics of cooperation or the science of, of how we gather wealth, which is what Reisman would say, you could say, oh, you could also have a, a field on the study of politics or war. But to me, that's just still economics. It's just you introduce a new contingent assumption to make it interesting. Like you said, okay, suppose we have a society where property rights are protected to this degree. But there's there's a government with these features, and it intervenes in these ways. What would the results be? To me, that's just economic analysis. I mean, I, I guess you could subdivide them into subcategories, but to me, it's all economics. So I'm not sure. I've written on this because it's, it's it's intriguing to me, but I've I've not been convinced yet that there's like for example Rothbard when Hoppe came up with his argumentation ethics. Hoppe Hoppe said I mean Rothbard said something like this is a great discovery by Hoppe. It would be interesting for other scholars to take this up and to see like what other areas of social sciences that axiomatics, as he calls it, axiomatics can be applied to. And again, that's tantalizing and intriguing, but uh, I'm, I'm still not sure. I mean, could you apply it to artistic theory? Could you apply it to movie criticism? Could you apply it to uh, professional ethics? Could you apply it to… Uh, intramarital manners. 
I don't know, maybe, but to me, the nugget of it is it's a, it's, it's an analysis of what rules make sense when you're analyzing what force is justifiable in a relationship or an interaction that has already eschewed the use of force. So that's why, to me, it's got to be about that. So I'm kind of simple-minded. I think that economics, praxeology is economics, and um, law is about the use of force, right? Anyway. But I'd certainly be interested if there's any application. It's What's interesting is interdisciplinary fields, they sometimes – you can learn things from the different fields and one guy who can bridge two or three of them can sometimes bridge them or learn, learn from one or extend one to the other. I don't know. I'm not, not, I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. Yeah. And I would say praxeology would probably, it would probably be more obvious how it could be falsifiable if there were a, an alternative theory that even came close to having the merits, the explanatory merits that praxeology has. Because, you know, in science, w there are the so-called crucial experiments such that when you have two or more rival or candidate theories, you conduct the crucial experiment. And it would be nice if there were uh, a rival theory to praxeology such that we could think of a crucial experiment, but I don't even, I don't think there is one. Well, it'd be hard, yeah, because it's not really, it's not a, yeah, it's not a falsifiable type of uh, hypothesis. It's more like the underpinnings of all other understandings. Um, now, there is an interest. I don't know if you read about this, but Hoppe talks about some of this in his um, his little monograph uh, on um, yeah, method the methodology of Austrian school. It's a little pamphlet. Uh, it's about uh, the epistemology of Austrian economics, and he talks in there about some of the some of the he calls it protophysics so you know he's such an austrian a priorist type he even thinks that there's there's a role for this a priorism in in the social in, in the in the physical sciences like um i think his guy named lorenzen who did a lot of this so like for example if you if you if how could you ever disprove Euclidean geometry as the fundamental basis of the universe by doing experiments with telescopes which were made with lenses following Euclidean geometry in their construction? You follow me? So it's so like it's like you presume the validity of the three dimensional concept of the world in the construction of their very instruments that gather data which now you say help prove that the world's not Euclidean. So it's sort of that it's sort of that application of this type of 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 of, of self-contradictory logic to show certain certain conceptions that we have about the world are um or a priori true. I'm not sure if I buy it, but it's it's intriguing again. Well, I buy the spirit of it. Uh, I, I did read that. And first of all, I will say, uh, following Einstein's general relativity, we know that reality is not Euclidean. Uh, triangles can add up to more than 180 degrees or less than 180 degrees. Uh, I, but when I say I take the spirit of your point, it's that as soon as we begin to engage in trying to understand reality, we are sort of assuming that whatever theories we have yet to discover or conjecture will themselves be comprehensible. So there are... There are things that our assumptions can imply about the world, but I guess I'm implying 
what I'm saying is because I'm a fallibilist at heart, I hesitate to accept any notion as being completely infallible because that would imply that we can know for all time and for all future endeavors that uh, we it, it predicts to know the future content of our theories and where errors cannot come from. And I hesitate to make that claim. Yeah, I uh, I find that interesting. So like the Ayn Rand view is that all knowledge is contextual. And that's sort of her way of protecting yourself if it later turns out that your theory was wrong, but you can still have certainty that it's true now because contextually you had a reason to believe it was true. But that's sort of a cheap way out. But the I think that the, um, the a priorists do not believe in, in they don't believe in infallibility um and i think there's a paper by barry smith about this it, uh, it's about in, in, def in defense of fallibilism i think it's in the review of austrian economics but the point the point and even hoppe has pointed this out like we're not saying that we're infallible so that's a little bit like a straw man uh believing in ineluctability or a priori proofs is not the same as infallibility it simply means that if you have not made a mistake in your identification of the necessary uh, presuppositions, right, which you contradict yourself if you if you dispute, and if you haven't made a mistake in your logical deductive reasoning, and if you haven't introduced a contingent assumption explicitly that's false, then your result has to be correct. But if if it's not correct, then there had to be a mistake in one of those other chains, and that's possible because we are fallible. So I think the idea of fallibility is completely compatible with the idea of a priorism. Um, but, you know, this is a little bit far afield, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic for sure. Yes, and actually, uh, I feel a little better about uh, praxeology now, because you're right, I agree with you. And then also, uh, it's contingent on all of the logic within the argument to be correct and all of that. So, so that's all fine. I still, and I think maybe we'll just have to disagree, I still think Austrian economics... It, it forbids particular empirical transformations from being possible in the world, and that does c come back to constructor theory, but I suppose I should leave it at that. So, yeah, I'd be curious to see, because I I, that's not how I think of Austrian economics. I, I think of praxeology as just the, um, the unpacking of our teleological conception of ourselves and our fellow humans. Like, we view ourselves as actors. We do have ends. That's undeniable that we actors have ends. We employ means to achieve those ends, and there are certain deductions from that. And to the extent other people we see are not robots or, or fake demons from God and that they're like us in their nature, there's no reason to think that they don't have a similar conception of themselves and they're not operating in the same way. So to say that humans act itself might not be an undeniable statement because the word human already introduces a contingent element. But you could say that uh, there can be actors because we're actors. It's sort of like the Descartes idea, uh, cogito ergo sum. We know that there are thinkers. I think we know that there are actors, and then the nature of action is implied by understanding what it is. And I think, in a way, that's a it's a superficial way of not superficial, but it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a practical way of. Uh, of understanding the motivations and the actions of other people, if you look at them as a quarter, a, a clock of a, a cloud of quarks, and you want to use your supercomputer to predict what they're going to do, you're going to fail. But it's because we're not God, or maybe it's because it's not possible. 
So it's a convenient, almost conceptual fiction to characterize other people as fellow actors. We do the same thing in with 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 cars and with dogs. You know, we'll say that the the car want the car wants to the wants the car wants to turn here or the car wants to accelerate. You know, but those are just metaphors we use to try to explain the operations of complex systems. Yes. I mean, I personally am skeptical of the idea of free will in a fundamental sense. I think that we're determined, but as human actors with our own desires and purposes, the best way to understand each other is to view ourselves as choosing actors. So you have to use this sort of this conceptual fiction of, of volition or free will to think of them as actors and to use economic analysis and social analysis to understand what they're going to do. But it's that's maybe no different than me looking at a painting and saying that the painting is full of rage as a way to grasp its significance. You know, it's, it's a convenient conceptual way that we understand very complex things. I think I disagree with you in that if something – uh, to, to quote David Deutsch again, if something f is implicated in our deepest explanation of some particular domain of reality, then it's simply irrational to regard it as a mere fiction, a mere useful fiction. So something like free will, I think, would be a, a real thing uh, to the extent that it's implicated in some particular uh, explanation. I'm not saying I have such an explanation. I'm just saying if we did have one and free will was... No. Um, huh? I'm sorry? No, I said no. I agree. I think the uh, the, the free will issue has always been to me one of the most difficult. I I personally think the answer is simply to <laughs> to realize that there is no free will, but that we we have a dualist perspective on understanding different realms of uh, different domains of existence, um, and one of them requires a certain conceptual baggage and terminology. And we I, so to an extent we have free will because that's imbued in our concept of actors and when we if we view each other these fellow court clouds as actors then they have free will they have choice but in the physics causal sense do they really i don't know to me this is a difficult issue i tend to be a type of mizizian dualist compatibilist and i may be the only one but um, um so i'm kind of a compatibilist on the free will issue but but I, i'm dissatisfied with everyone else i'm dissatisfied with with sam harris his 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 book on free will i'm dissatisfied with typical accounts of compatibilism i'm totally dissatisfied with the um the objectivist view of free will as believing in downward causation which i i can't mentally comprehend which free will seems to require in the genuine sense yes i'm on board and with downward causation well, you have to be if you believe in free will, and that. And, yeah. But the, but but it seems to me it seems mystical, and and um, um, it doesn't add anything to the conceptual framework that you were already adopting by just viewing each other as actors. Well, I mean, I can look at my car as a car and look at the components as functional. Like it has tires, it has an engine, it has red paint, but the it has seats. But the difference between you and your car is your car is a predictable phenomenon, whereas you are not. This is what I'm sort of saying about knowledge and economics and free will is that the growth of knowledge is an inherently unpredictable phenomenon, as I was saying earlier. And maybe you'll disagree, which is fine.
No, no, this is a standard Austrian argument. That the, right. the, 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 the standard Austrian argument is that the, the future is uncertain, and this exactly why that we can't know – I mean Hoppe makes this point. We can't know what we're going to know. Exactly. If we knew what we were going to know, we would already know it. So I think as a practical matter and maybe as a fundamental matter, it is unpredictable. But whether it's unpredictable or not in practice or theoretically doesn't mean that there's free will, I think. It might mean there's just randomness or chaos. Free will to me seems to violate the law of causality, this idea of downward causation. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's stop there. I would love to send you, if you'd like, the foundational paper on constructor theory. I think you'd enjoy it. Um, but, sure. You know, uh, okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. That'd be that'd be fun. Um, and I can even maybe I'll highlight the sections that are relevant to Austrian economics for you, if you want. Sure. Great. Be well, happy to take a look. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Mr. Kinsella, uh, it's been a great pleasure. We'll have to do it again sometime so that we can bash intellectual property rights together because we didn't even get there. I know. I know. Anytime. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. So, okay, last quick question. If you had to recommend one book to someone who is completely new to praxeology, libertarianism, pra uh, Austrian economics, the whole thing, what book or essay would you recommend? Oh, it depends on it depends upon how basic they need to go. I mean, for for really basic stuff, I mean, I would this is not really praxeology, but Bastiat's The Law is amazing, and so is Hazlitt's Economics of One Lesson. But for like a really good work that takes a little effort to get through, not as bad as human action, um, I, I, I would have to say Hoppe's A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism is such a foundational work for me. The way it integrates property rights, the fun, a fundamental essentialist view of property rights – um, and integrates it with economic insights and uh, and, and and argumentation ethics itself. Um, and my favorite book by Mises, by the way, is his ultimate foundation of um, economic science. Like I think it was his last book he wrote in his, his 80s or maybe even his 90s. It's it's amazing. It's short. These are both dense and they require some thinking. But uh, if I had to just say one, it would be Hoppe's A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. Okay, I'll remember that. Usually I recommend Anatomy of the State only because it's so short and it's kind of, uh, it can be shocking. So. Um, yeah, and so is, uh, for that kind of book, For a New Liberty by Rothbard. Yeah, that's like true. like a, pr a, a, a primer on libertarian theory from a kind of systematic point of view. Um, but yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of good ones out there. Yeah, but, that's um, true. I, I, I wouldn't recommend The Fountainhead because The Fountainhead, I... <laughs> It sort of got me started, but I've come to realize the whole book is about some weird narcissist guy who becomes an intellectual property terrorist so uh, and a rapist too. So The Fountainhead, I'm not sure why it becomes the, the beginning of libertarian thought for so many people, including me. Yeah, I don't know. I never read any Ayn Rand, to be honest. <laughs> well... It's hard to say whether you're missing out or not. It, it is a key part of libertarian foundationalism, but you know, it, it messes some people up too. Sure. All right, Mr. Kinsella. Well, once again, thank you very much. I appreciate your time, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Take care. If you value what we're doing here on the Fallible Animals podcast, 
please consider donating to the show. I recently set up a Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash fallibleanimals. I very much appreciate your support, and it inspires me to continue to spread these ideas, whether through podcasts or articles.